The majority of these instruments are fine unless you take an axe to them and destroy them. They're going to survive forever. And so it would be interesting to think what would happen if these creatures would have a little bit of vulnerability, if something about them would be soft and cuddly and they could have something that would be equivalent to a feeling. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast of The Decision Lab, a socially conscious applied research firm that uses behavioral science to improve outcomes for all of society. My name is Brooke Struck, Research Director at TDL, and I'll be your host for the discussion. My guest today is Antonio Damasio, David Dornseif Chair in Neuroscience at the University of Southern California, member of too many prestigious societies and laureate of too many prestigious to name, and most recently, the author of Feeling and Knowing, Making Minds Conscious. In today's episode, we'll be talking about his latest book, looking especially at how consciousness is built up from various layers underneath, the paradox of AI, and what machines are teaching us about ourselves. Professor Damasio, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. You're writing about consciousness, and this latest book that you've published is very accessible. It's very approachable for a lay audience. And uh, you mentioned in the book that there seems to be a bit of a groundswell in the topic of consciousness these days. Why is consciousness keeping us up nights? The book is really about consciousness, no question. But I want to insist on the first word of the title, which is feeling. So it's a book about consciousness through feeling. It's interesting because consciousness, I'm old enough to have seen that on and off there has been an interest in consciousness. There was, for example, about 20 years ago, there was also an enormous amount of interest in the scientific community to resolve the problem of consciousness. At that point, in spite of all the interest and the efforts and the different papers and communications and even books, people sort of came to the premature conclusion that this is not going to be a solvable problem. There was a little bit of a quiet period. And now, again, we have this return to the problem because it was not solved, but people were not happy and they clearly wanted to understand. The reason is something so essential for what we are. I mean, there's absolutely no way that you would be talking to me if we were not conscious. It's something that is nagging at people. People want to have answers on this problem. And until we have some kind of satisfactory situation, people will return to it. It will take time to settle issues because right now there's so many different strands of research and thinking pulling at this problem. And unfortunately, they end up being a little bit incompatible. So I don't think this is going to be settled. And by no means do I expect people to read my book and say, oh, well, here's the solution. Although actually a few of them might. It's interesting. The book just came out this week. In the first couple of days already, I've got people saying, wonderful, I finally understand. This is it. Maybe by being a little bit candid and not too insistent, maybe some people will listen. And of course, as you well know, I'm right. Let's take this whetted appetite and give it something to dig into. Let's open the cover now and talk a little bit about what's inside this book. So you talk about a hierarchy from sensing to minding to feeling, to consciousness. Can you talk us through this cascade a little bit? That cascade comes out of the number of approaches that I have. One is that we're looking at life. It's not that we're just looking at human beings and their properties and problems. We're looking at life in general. And I think that whatever we say about what we are and uh, about fantastic processes such as consciousness or feeling, or language, we have to put them in the context of life. And I think this has helped me. For a while, I have been trying to look 
at ourselves in a historical perspective. And that historical perspective actually has to begin with the very first living things. And the very first living beings were creatures with one single cell and uh, not tremendous amount of complexity. They were alive and they could move within a certain environment. But the main point is that for a period that has that goes be between the birth of that organism and the death and disappearance of organism, pretty much the same thing that happens with us when we think about it. During that period, there were certain actions, there were certain phenomena that manifested life within that simple organism. But when we look at those simple organisms, with one cell or with few cells, something that is obvious is that they can react to the environment. So they can react to the environment, they can, by reacting, by obviously sensing the environment, they can decide, quote-unquote, whether they're going to be in this particular place or in another place. And that depends on sensing the conditions that are suitable or not suitable for the continuation of life. So we have something quite spectacular going on, which is the fact that these creatures are alive from what they do to themselves, where they place them relative to, say, temperature or nutrients. They clearly are behaving intelligently, and yet we cannot really see how that intelligence could be known to them. This is probably the most important beginning that we can have to get at the issue of consciousness, is there are living beings that have a beginning and an end, a course of life, a history, uh, during which they do things. They can sense their environment, and they are obviously intelligent because they're doing the right thing to continue the life. And yet, there's no way we can understand how they could know what they're doing. They're not doing it because they want to. They're not doing it because they think it's the right way. Actually, they don't think. And in fact, the best way of describing them is being intelligent but mindless. Or if we want to be polite, saying they're intelligent in a covert way. Intelligence is not known to them, it's not manifest, which really means it's not conscious. As we go on in the history of such creatures, they get to be more and more complicated. They get to have more and more cells. Then they get to have different systems. And they continue doing this business of sensing what's in the outside. So they are, they're beings, obviously, and they sense. They're doing sensing of the environment. And this is very intelligent and it's all very good for them. I'd like to tell the story on the way to come to us is that at some point, the complexity of organisms is such. They have so many different cells, so many different systems, so many different organs, that it would have been impossible to continue life with that complexity if you did not have a way of coordinating what one organ or one system is doing relative to the other. And this is, I think, when Providence invented nervous systems. And nervous systems, for me, are not things that begin the way our brains are today, with you know, a great big cerebrum and the brainstem and the spinal cord and nerves everywhere. They begin by being simple coordinators of a very complex organism that is getting more complex, and that probably was inducing early death and disease because the coordination would be impossible. Once nervous systems come into being, we have a new game. Once that happens, then we, we start on a possibility of sensing 
not just through the general cells that make up a body, but also very particular cells that have as their business detecting what is going on and then actually differentiating the detection so that it is one thing to detect temperature, another to detect concentration of a certain nutrient, and then eventually all the developments that we have in nervous systems that are aimed not just at detecting what is inside the organism, but also what is outside, which is, of course, what is allowing me to see you on the screen and you to see me and we to hear each other and so forth. The as things were developing is also, for me, a stage which is critical. This nervous system, these cells, are organized in such a way. They permit a representation of what is going on inside the organism. And that representation is, of course, very critical because what I'm envisioning is something that would be this nervous system becoming not just the coordinator, but eventually the regulator of life. It would make sense that as you sense better, as you sense more of what's in the organism, you also gain the possibility of coordinating things better and therefore allowing for more complex behaviors and for a longer maintenance of life in good conditions. Because of course, in all of this, and this is the last thing I'm going to introduce in this background to answer this long answer to your short question, there's a magic formula for how life can continue. And that magic formula has to do with the state of homeostasis, funny word, but it simply means life regulation, that will allow the utilization of energy, a procurement and utilization of energy to be compatible with life in reasonable conditions for as long as possible. We now have a nervous system. We have this sort of a addict that says homeostasis is needed at all times. And the nervous system is going to try to comply with that addict and is going to arrange things in your organism so that you can maintain that life. And final point, it would have been wonderful to develop what nature in fact developed, which is a way of sensing what is going on and therefore making at first recommendations about what to do next that were non-conscious, were not known to anybody. But then lo and behold, at a certain point, having those recommendations come in a form that would be spontaneously, naturally known. And that's what happens when you get the first feelings, I think. So feelings are very clear messages that are being sent by the organism to this also in parallel budding construction called the mind. When a feeling comes in and results in you feeling hungry or feeling thirsty or feeling pain, for example, it is telling you spontaneously, naturally, a bit of very important knowledge, and it is allowing you, provided you have enough of a nervous system to respond, it's allowing you to do the right thing at that point. Feeling is the inauguration of consciousness, as far as I can see. It is that because it is telling you in the beginning of this mind process that, look, the body is in a condition where X or Y is required. And provided you can respond that way, that's going to be effective. It's going to allow you to continue. It really is a very remarkable development. What this means also is that from there on, you don't have creatures that are sensing, but don't know that they're sensing and don't know what they're doing, even if they do the right thing. From now on, you have the beginning of your own responsibility as a living being of doing something that conforms with the knowledge 
with the information that feeling is giving you. And that's why I call my book Feeling and Knowing. It's these two things. Feeling is about knowledge. And it's presenting knowledge to a nervous system that is also has by now other kinds of knowledge. And that knowledge is, of course, very central. And of course, feeling and knowledge, the next word that you want to put in this chain is consciousness, because that's what it is. You are, you are conscious when you know and when you refer that knowledge to yourself, to your organism. So it's really an interesting pirouette that one is doing here. You gain, it's not just sensing, it's sensing, but sensing with knowledge about what is going on. And that knowledge is in the form of feeling. Why is it in the form of feeling? Well, because feeling relates to your body. It is naturally about the body. It's a particular kind of knowledge that is going to allow you to there's a lot there to unpack. Let me try okay. to summarize a little bit. So sensing is simple receptivity to one's environment. Even at the level of a single-celled organism, we have this kind of receptivity. If it's warm over there and I'm the kind of being that likes warm, then I will move in the direction of warmth. Not because I'm aware of it, not because I have some grand narrative about who I am as a single-celled organism, but simply because I'm the kind of thing that has a receptivity to temperature and temperature is good for me and there are certain fundamental laws about how I'm going to behave that are baked into my being. And so when I have this receptivity, when I receive that signal, I will gravitate towards it, not out of any choice, not even necessarily out of an awareness that this belongs to me. It's just an automatic response. When we start to get nervous systems, when we start to get not just single-celled or even multi-celled organisms, but multi-system organisms, where we have the specialization of different functions, then one of those functions that goes along with it is the coordination function. And this is where we move into feeling, that integration of various receptivities into one coherent piece, which includes sensitivity to external stimuli as well as sensitivity to internal stimuli. So hunger, for instance, is an internal stimulus that can be integrated into this piece, which we call feeling. Consciousness then is an additional layer that's on top of that. It's not just having this kind of integrated sense of feeling, but that sense of that those integrated feelings actually belonging to me, that there is a something that is having those feelings. Is this correct? Absolutely correct. You summarized it beautifully. You said it even better than I did. Thank you. Let's dig into this now. So before moving on, I just want to say one small thing. You talked in your introductory remarks today about changes since the last time that we were really wrestling with the hard problem. And I think one of those changes, which is what we're already touching on here, is that we're starting to drop the idea that consciousness lives from the neck up. This, I think, helps us to overcome a lot of the challenges that we were previously trying to tangle with with the hard problem. And this really, I think, gets at the heart of a lot of the novelty that you're bringing with this book here. And, and in fact, as you mentioned in the title, feeling and consciousness, that consciousness as this kind of tabula rasa model where people are dancing out on stage to be appropriated into consciousness. This misses the fundamental kind of layers that are going underneath that allow consciousness to even emerge. And those layers are not things that happen only within your brain. There's not a fixed and hard stop between your brain, for instance, and your spinal cord or your spinal cord and the rest of your nervous system that extends out through the rest of your body. That is absolutely critical. One of the things that is most spectacular in the change that has happened in these few years is that little by little, some people are accepting this turn of events that you're describing. When the discussions on consciousness began, well, first of all, the discussions on consciousness go a long way back. Every once in a while, people have, either with that word or with words to that effect, they have, of course, touched on the problem of consciousness. It's not a new issue. Once 
neuroscience appeared in the scene and had was acknowledged as this spectacular development. And once people were, for example, able to get a glimpse of what the retina was and what the visual system was producing, there was this moment of explosion of neuroscience and everything seemed possible. And the interesting thing is that something terrible happened, in my view, is that neuroscience had this enormous moment of success, this explosion around senses that are directed to the outside. And, you know, it's perfectly reasonable that people wanted to understand how they saw, they heard, even how they touched them. That was not a primary interest, but not how they felt. That was skipped over completely. Neuroscience developed spectacularly about the external senses, and there were huge successes and huge Nobel Prizes for the discoveries. And unfortunately, the idea then became sort of very, it was very sensible. We have all of this complexity. Consciousness is obviously complex. So we have to look for consciousness at this high level of complexity. It's something that evolution must have given us at the end of this long trajectory that ended up in complicated homo sapiens. And of course, nothing could be more wrong. We literally started at the wrong end. I have First, timidly, and now not so timidly, I'm saying it's exactly the opposite. I mean, please don't worry about visual awareness and visual consciousness. That will come. That's actually easy to explain, but you're not going to understand how we end up being individuals, end up having a sense of self by understanding how the retina works. Yeah, that's very interesting. And in fact, uh, I think that there are some good historical reasons for why it is that we would have thought that kind of thing. I mean, the image of man as the rational animal, and if nothing else, you know, human exceptionalism, this idea that we have very strongly imported from our religious past, as much as we try to outrun it, that somehow man is special and that consciousness is a unique thing or something must be unique to humans because we must be other. This is what leads us to really neglect focus on the body. And when we do think about the body, often we think about it as something that leads us astray. Now, certainly there are instances where the body leads us astray. There are instances where I am actually now consciously aware, having worked at it for several years, that when my gut clenches, perhaps this is actually the wrong response to the social situation that I'm in. And it's mm-hmm. likely to elicit certain kinds of behaviors that are maladaptive to the situation. They don't serve me well. They don't serve the situation well. And through, as I say, several years of resurfacing those things to consciousness, I recognize that sometimes my body leads me astray, but those still remain the exceptions. For the vast majority of what my body does, it does an exceptionally good job of keeping me alive. Exactly. Absolutely. The point. It's very interesting, too, because that historical situation in which we are, which you summarized beautifully, there's also the fact that you have had this tug of war between what was called emotion or affect and reason. And of course, there's no question that historically people have been very preoccupied in maintaining reason, rationality, or this idea that if we are rational, we are really above the other creatures, which are non-rational, because guess what? They are about their simple emotions and so forth. And of course, there's nothing simple about emotion. There's a huge job of deconstruction and reconstruction of these different concepts. We're right in the middle of it. And I would be very surprised if in the next five to 10 years, these things would not be sorted out in not really a new paradigm, but a new arrangement in which a lot of the things we have been saying up to now sound a little bit odd because they just don't conform to reality. But it's so interesting, isn't it, this idea that you could have a rational individual without feelings of any sort. 
and that you would actually do better suppress feelings and emotions or all of that terrible stuff so that you can be rational. And of course, the only thing that you would get is monstrous creatures because it's not the way we were put together. Let's pivot to monstrous creatures of another sort. Let's talk about artificial intelligence, which in some ways is actually exactly what you just described, right? It's an attempt to create some kind of highly rational system and doing so in a way that, at least up until now, for the most part, does not involve a body. So in this cascade of sensing to feeling to consciousness, where do you see AI fitting in right now? So obviously AI is very convenient as a tool. And it allows us to do things that we could not do before at a speed that we could not do before. And it is a very smart development, provided we can put kind of controls on it. But it also it inspires you to think or to compare the AI creature, say a robot, well-equipped with the good brain-like governance with the creatures that we are. And the differences are obvious. First of all, those robots are not alive in the proper sense. They are, you know, you can plug them in and they're ready to go, which might be convenient for us in many ways, but it's just not the way we are, so too bad. And in this regard, when you look at what is missing the most, well, the signs of life, and then something that, of course, goes with life that is quite important, which is the vulnerabilities that we're subject to also go. The majority of these instruments are fine unless you take an axe to them and destroy them. They're going to survive forever. And so it would be interesting to think what would happen if these creatures would have a little bit of vulnerability, if something about them would be soft and cuddly and they could have something that would be equivalent to a feeling, which is really some kind of register of how the body has changed as a result of some set of needs that that body would have, not just electrical power, other things that it might need. So this is both vague, but I think extremely pointed in the sense that it contrasts creatures that are invulnerable by definition, don't have birth and a death in the sense that we do, and that now we would have creatures that would be vulnerable in some way. The question, and this is of course something about which you can speculate, but mostly one could and should do experiments, what would that vulnerability do? Would it make those creatures smarter in some circumstances, imagine that they might, or would actually just be a way of buying into stupidity and not getting any positive result. It's interesting because in relation to the ideas that uh, I and a colleague of mine, Kingston Mann, put out in a paper a couple of years ago, there were both reactions. There were the people that thought, this is interesting, this is new, let's think about it. And the people that said, why would you want that? I mean, we're fine. You don't want you don't want the, the computers that are controlling my 747 flight to be having touchy cuddly feelings. You want to avoid that. Of course, that's for sure. You know, I don't want to fly with soft robotics. I want to fly with hard robotics. But I still want to have a pilot there, <laughs> just in case. And that pilot does, in fact, introduce an element of, uh, I think, welcome vulnerability. I asked the question in a somewhat uncharitable way. Let me back up and, and disaggregate a few things to help the conversation along. So one of the things that I didn't talk about is what it is that we're, how it is that we're creating our AI algorithm, what it is that we're connecting it to and this kind of thing. So it strikes me that there's an important difference between an AI algorithm that is trained on a static data set versus an AI algorithm that is trained attached to live receptors that are feeding in a constant stream of new data. 
there's another element that I want to bring in around effectuator systems. So mm-hmm. mechanical systems that allow an AI to take action based on what it is that it computes, which would be the analog of our muscular system. So it's not just that we as soft fleshy beings have nervous systems that coordinate all these various inputs, but we respond to them as well. And we have systems that allow us to respond. So if we want to take the AI analog a little bit closer, we give it not only a constant feed of live data from receptors, as we have with our eyes and our hands, etc. We also give them effector systems. We can think of a robot that is somewhat human in its shape. But as you mentioned, an airplane also has effector systems. It, it has flaps and it has engines and these kinds of things that allow it to interact with its environment. This, I think, allows us to place AI in the, the realm of feeling from the hierarchy that we were discussing before, the layers that we were discussing before, that it strikes me as sensible to say that an AI in that kind of situation has a set of various inputs that it is integrating and a set of actions that it is taking in response to those inputs. And that kind of coordination strikes me as analogous to what we had described as feeling earlier on. It's equivalent to feeling, but one issue that, one one component that I would see missing there is experience. Definitely many elements that are equivalent to feeling, all the data that correspond to different points of an organism that are being fed into some somewhat more central stations. What's so curious about feeling and why I talk about interactions between sensors that are in the nervous system and the flesh that is around those sensors. There is an interaction, and as a result of that interaction, there's this experience that is born out of the student, that there's something that apparently at first glimpse is magic, but in the end, you can try to dig in and try to explain it. So that, in your description of the artificial intelligence, I would see the experience as missing. Mm -hmm. Would you agree? Yeah, I think so. So thinking about that nature paper that you wrote, which is another excellent piece for anyone looking for some good reading to get you far too wound up before you try to go to sleep. One of the things that I found so interesting there is your discussion about the hard metals and hard plastics out of which we Mm -hmm. tend to make most mechanical bodies. And that essentially these materials are so invulnerable to so much of what happens in the environment that in fact, the number of inputs or the variety of inputs that are required for something living in a body like that to interact with its environment become far too oversimplified. Now, from a computational perspective, that makes a lot of sense, right? If you can simplify something, then this helps you to save a lot of energy and computational power and all these kinds of things. If the object of the exercise is to create something that feels, then those kinds of efficiency gains are counterproductive. The way nature developed, we ended up with this great, certainly unexpected from the point of view of a creator, this great gain, which is feeling this idea that as the process is going, as the regulatory process is going, you get to experience it. It's at that point exactly that you have to place the problem of consciousness, because that's where consciousness begins to happen. Not our big consciousness that I have right now, the view on my screen and my environment around here, which is another huge development, but which is actually quite simple. You know, to go from feeling is the hard part. Once you get that, then everything else is perception and connecting whatever perception you have with that feeling, you have the problem solved. Now, there's no big problem about coordinating the spectacular view. And I look in that direction and I see buildings on Wilshire Boulevard and I look there and I see the Santa Monica Mountains and I look in front and I see you. All of that is very nice engineering in, in these different sensory systems. But the magic is that I am seeing all of these things. And at the same time, 
I am connecting them with me. And it's that connection that makes me experience and that allows me to be conscious. I stopped your flow. You were going into homeostasis. Yeah. So homeostasis is, is kind of the next frontier here. And you talk about survival and propagation as the core purposes of life. And one of the things that you raise in your book, very timely, given the pandemic we're living through right now, is the paradox or what I would call the scandal of viruses, right? We have something that is not alive and yet seems to have this telos or this purpose of propagating, well, in this instance, it's nucleic acids, right? There's some information that makes it what it is. And propagating that information is the purpose of this thing, but the thing is not alive. Yeah. Why is this such a paradox? What is the scandal? It's a paradox relative to our misconceptions about it, that we come to these creatures with a series of preconceptions and we imagine them to be alive. In fact, all the discourse is about life and death kill them. It's that because they share some characteristics with things that are for sure alive, like, you know, fully formed cells and so forth. One reason why this is so also strange and so bizarre is the, the size scales. So big creatures, we occupy a lot of space and these things occupy nothing. You know, you can't see them. You, know, you need all sorts of optical um, devices and sometimes not even that to see. And you call them creatures because there's no other way to call them. I like the idea of scandal, yeah. Paradox scandal. I'm borrowing the term from Immanuel Kant, who thought it was scandalous that we had to just accept on faith that there was a world out there that we were experiencing and we didn't have any proof of it. This is where I'm drawing this scandal idea. You're borrowing from, from somebody worth borrowing. I think that the same scandal is true of AI as well. If we think about the way that a lot of neural nets are designed, essentially what we're doing is we're creating these mini blood sport competitions between various algorithms who are all competing to outlive each other. Other. And essentially what they are trying to propagate, just the way a virus tries to propagate its nucleic acid, what the algorithm is trying to propagate is its little piece of code, its solution to a certain formula. Does that change anything? And, and what we were talking about earlier with, you know, one of the potential shortcomings for AI and moving towards feeling and towards consciousness, if we think about this in the context of homeostasis, aren't AI algorithms in many instances in, uh, you know, locked in this battle, red in tooth and claw, uh, trying to out-survive their competitors? Interesting. I have not thought about that, and I think you may be right. You want to write about this, but what you just said is very intriguing, but I would like to see it written so that I could think about it. Are you writing about this, by the way? No, I'm, I'm speaking about it now, and some very beautiful individual will take my words and take them from sound and put them onto a page so that people can read about it. Why not you? Oh, I'm channeling my inner Socratic. I refuse to write. I will only have scribes follow me and follow a few steps behind with the hemlock if things don't go well. Great, great. Okay. Very good images. You want to be writing. That's essential. If you're going to write or speak, you have to have access to interesting images that can basically tell what you want to tell in terms of ideas. Let's talk about paradoxes. You mentioned earlier a potential recombination. You hesitated a little bit from the term paradigm shift, but maybe that's a direction that we should be thinking about. It's often these paradoxes or these scandals that lead to these very profound realizations of something that in retrospect can seem so obvious, like we were tripping over it for so long, but we didn't see it until all of a sudden, right? And then we can't help but see it anymore. I think that one of the big shifts that you're really bringing with this book, standing on the shoulders of giants, as so many of us do, is this, this shift from thinking about consciousness as something that just happens in the brain, just happens in the head, to thinking about the full body. And that paradox of how it is that 
you know, the mind actually lives outside of just the brain and ends up extended in space. Once we overcome that, we can overcome lots of other challenges, notably the hard problem, which I think you've done a very nice job addressing in this book. I want to think now about the future. I want to think about these paradoxes we've just been discussing, the paradox of viruses and the paradox of artificial intelligence. When we encounter these paradoxes, we learn something profound about ourselves. What is it that we are learning about humans in virtue of the way that we are observing artificial intelligence being developed? Seeing artificial intelligence move from these initial steps of just being trained on static data sets to then being fed progressively more complex and even real-time data sets to being given effectuator motor systems to be able to act in the world and even now being put in a situation where homeostasis is something like what it is that they are trying to achieve. Although, as you mentioned earlier, there's some parallel there, but it's not perfect. I think in the same way that viruses are not trying to achieve homeostasis, there's something, there's some kind of propagation of signal, some kind of continuation that they seek. But homeostasis isn't quite the right word. The same thing seems to be true of AI. There's something homeostasis-like going on there, but that's not quite the right word. What is this teaching us about what it means to be a person? What are we learning about the human condition that we wouldn't have known to look for? until, you know, we started to see AI do human-like things, but just a little bit different. My immediate honest response is that I don't know what I would choose first. Probably the thing that I would choose first is to look at the considerable beauty of having a system that is so clearly calling attention to its needs in order to continue and calling attention to the needs in a variety of ways. This idea of well-being and pain and suffering. Very interesting. And by the way, this is very interesting and important because of the words, when you think about pain and suffering, and when you think about the whole world of living things that are not humans, in which, in Homer, we can see suffering. That's very important. It's obviously something that we come into by fits and starts. When you think, for example, of the work of someone like Peter Singer, the way that people are beginning to realize that this world out there that we have... um, so neglected. Let me just interject. I'm thinking about something I listened to the other day, which absolutely confounded me. Somebody who was saying that it's so interesting will not put big animals or human beings in hot water because make them suffer. But you can put a lobster in hot water because the lobster doesn't have feelings. I want to interject and say that in Europe, this is not the case. In Europe, lobsters do have feelings and one does not put them into hot water anymore. Very good. So interesting. It just how it takes time for these ideas to settle in, for people to recognize the things that they are doing wrong with other living beings or with the environment. So losing my point here, but I think that paying attention to the tremendous similarities between our feeling system and the feeling system of other creatures is extremely important. And it's important to give you a continuity, sort of mark certain points in that trajectory that comes all the way to humans and to the tremendous mental complexity that we have unleashed and the tremendous achievement that we have before us. That's really very interesting. When you look at cultures, when you look at the products of our nervous system, there's absolutely no question that we have a big dividing line, even between the most complex non-human animals and us. We were able to create something quite extraordinary. And that extraordinary thing was created out of ideas, out of observations 
of behaviors. And with that, we created incredibly complex structures. Everything that has to do with, for example, with moral behaviors or with the law and with the technologies that we have created. It's really a big dividing line. And I think what we want is for a science of feeling and consciousness to put the light on this transition between the less complex creatures and us, at the same time, give value to the extraordinary things that are going on on both sides. So if you have this line separating humans from non-humans, on the human side, we have the spectacular development of our cultures, in spite of all the complete mess we're making of it right now, which is quite egregious. On the other side, you see this, this great complexity as well, and you see all the sources. You have the points that connect with our great adventure as humans. Maybe that look back and that recognition of what is so complex and great and rich in what preceded us, maybe that can help a little bit with the management of what is moving forward. Because what is moving forward, for example, the fact that part, actually it's interesting, just occurring to me that problems we're facing today in great part come out of the scandalous viruses. Because clearly, the, our socio-political moment uh, would be very different if we did not have COVID for the past two years. And it continues to be a, a dramatic pressure on economies, political government, and so forth. The other big problem that we face actually has to do with AI, the use of AI in our cultures. And so it has very something to do with social media. If I would have to choose the things that are most troubling today, I would choose the, the problem that has to do with the infectious diseases and the problem that has to do with social media and what it has done to our political discourse, for example, mm -hmm. to our civility. And it's now becoming perfectly obvious that it is a, a major problem. Would you agree with that? I would. I would add uh, climate to that, and maybe we can come back yeah. to that. But I think that there's a, a very rich point for us to unpack around the quite dramatic threat that AI represents in the social media ecosystems. And that is, as we were mentioning earlier, you know, one of the challenges with AI from the perspective of trying to develop consciousness is that the sensors have been too simplified. This has been facilitated by having rigid bodies and these kinds of things. We have so simplified the sensors that AI does not become conscious. Right. In the context of social media, we have done exactly the same thing. We have so simplified the sensors and we have so simplified the function that we are looking to optimize when we introduce artificial intelligence into a social media ecosystem that we are creating, I would say, existential threats to ourselves. Our societies literally are falling apart and we have major coordinated action challenges that we as a species must face, which we are struggling to face at least partially because of the way that we are using artificial intelligence in the way that we communicate with each other. We are in complete agreement. Yeah. I think also that I really appreciate the ethical dimension of what it is that you mentioned earlier. You talked about what AI is teaching us in terms of not just how we should be looking at, but how we should be treating other organisms. If we had a clean story before about how we are worthy of moral respect and other animals and other creatures are not, AI has come and shuffled the deck on that. <laughs> and it's just made it much harder for us to sustain the idea that there is a one clear, 
unobjectionable dividing line and that ethical consideration lives entirely on one side of that line and not the other. I think even your historical approach in writing the book, talking about the evolution of single-celled organisms towards you know multicellular and multi-system all the way up until us, even just that literary approach to telling the story and explaining the concepts that you're looking to explain, that in itself is already challenging this kind of narrative of a harsh divide with all the ethics on one side and none on the other. AI is just adding fuel to that fire. And I think that it's a fire that we should continue to feed. We should always be asking ourselves about how it's appropriate to treat other people, to treat other beings, to treat entire ecosystems. That seems to be a reasonable question now in a way that it might not have seemed five or six years ago. Absolutely. Well, I think we are in complete agreement. Well, that's no good. We'll have to have another conversation where we can really duke it out. Okay. Yeah, Professor Damasio, thank you very much for your time, your generosity, and your insights today. Thank you for writing this book. And I would encourage anybody reading today to check out Feeling and Knowing, Making Minds Conscious. And uh, with that, I will say a very deep and heartfelt thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure to have a conversation with you. I hope we can continue this conversation in different ways, maybe one day in person. Okay? That sounds wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Decision Corner. For a transcript of this conversation and for other related content, head on over to our website, thedecisionlab.com. While you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter and learn about our consulting services. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. We'll see you back here next week.